What if I told you that you only have to learn 20% of personal finance to get 80% of the results? Would you believe me? Nope. Maybe. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, the physician philosopher, sorry, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. And I'm your co-host, Jimmy Turner. Woot woot. And welcome back to the show. Jimmy and I are going to be talking on our Wednesday segment about a really cool idea that he's actually written the book on. But before we jump into all this fun stuff that we're about to nerd out on, let's talk about our important disclaimer. This show is not personalized financial advice. In fact, this is for entertainment purposes and should only be seen as general education. Neither of us can give you any specific advice on your financial situation through the show. So if you aren't a do-it-yourself financial guru, you should probably consult an attorney, CPA, or a fee-only financial planner like Ryan before you go and make any big money decisions. Today's show is all about the Pareto Principle. So the idea behind this is that, and it applies to many things, but you can get 80% of the results that you're looking for from 20% of the work. And in my opinion, I think this is true for personal finance too. In fact, it's the reason that I wrote a book and subtitled it with exactly that. So the subtitle of my book, The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance, is that the 20% of personal finance doctors need to know to get 80% of the results. So that's all based on the Pareto Principle. And today's show will walk you through some of those salient points that are in that 20% and tell you which ones make the cut. It's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, except for it's the Physician's Guide to Personal Finance. That's exactly right. Mine is so much more entertaining, though. It's I'm really... going to say probably not, but... Probably not. <laughs> what's the 20%? So let's jump in. And I think what would be best, Jimmy, if we just said, here are the five things that you know kind of make the cut, and then let's just jump into one after the other. All right. Sounds good. So broad, big picture, five things that I picked from the book. One is the basics. So we'll dive into that and talk about what that is. The second one is interacting with the financial industry. So knowing how to, as I call it, fight fair. Number three is student loans. Number four is investing. And the fifth one is finding the balance between your future needs and your current life. So those are the five. Awesome. So let's go into the basics. Like what are we referring? Because like as an advisor, my basics might be different than your basics. Yeah. So I think that the basics for me can kind of be boiled down into a few different things. So the first is kind of understanding your cash flow. So budgeting, the money coming in versus the money going out, where it's going. Now, I've alluded to this before in prior shows. I don't really believe in a $0 budget. I don't assign jobs to every dollar that I bring in. My wife and I believe in basically making our goals and making sure that those are happening every month and then we spend what's left. So what you're telling me is is that you don't budget or are you telling me that you understood where money was kind of flowing, you prioritized your goals and then the money that's left over you spend. The way you said that sounded so much better. Yes. Yes, that's that's what I meant. No, so yeah, we don't we don't have like I don't track an Excel sheet. I don't, you know, do you use do you need a budget? I don't have any software that I'm really <laughs> plugging and playing with for our for our budget. So in terms of a traditional $0 budget, we don't do that. 
we do, when we have trouble, track spending, see where money's going if we have issues. And we have an idea of how much money we spend every month. But you're right. That all came from making an intentional plan, going through the kinder questions, having the big picture filled out first and having an idea of where we are going and then assigning dollars to those things to make sure we're going to get there by the time that we want. After that, we spend what's left. So yeah, I, I, I agree. And And there's some some more of the basics that are kind of hidden in that. So if you unlayer that a little bit, if you peel back the onion, that involves paying yourself first. That means that you're going to put money away to pay your future self first. You're automatically building wealth. And that means that you are going to take care of other things that probably need to go into those big picture items, like creating an emergency fund from the beginning. So, you know, before you get to the fancy stuff, like saving for kids, college education, and you know, how much money you're going to put into that and investing and what number or age you're going to be financially independent by probably need to make an emergency fund for three to six months. So that's definitely part of the basics. And I get lots of questions from, from readers on my site that are like, Hey, you know, should I, should I do a Roth IRA this year or should I uh, put more money to my, to my student loans? And I always ask them like, well, you know, have you made an emergency fund yet? And they're like, no. I'm like, that's interesting. You know, I think that you probably need to sit down and think a little bit more about the big picture and you probably need to have an emergency fund so that you don't dive into credit card debt, which is much worse than the student loans you're carrying. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we get the old, you know, should I pay off debt or invest? It's literally the question I get asked almost daily. I feel like uh, someone calls in, writes in, or just randomly asks me as we're talking. Cause as a numbers nerd, I uh, ultimately say what I do. And then it's like, oh, well, I got this question. I've got this and this and this. Should I pay that off or invest? And you're like, I kind of knew that was coming, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, create, create an emergency fund, please. But there, you know, so these are some of the basics, but on your budgeting or lack thereof, if we want to go, I think you do cash flow planning. I call it a backwards budget. Okay. Well, I don't like yours. I like cash flow planning better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, either, it doesn't matter what you call it. The idea though, is that you want your intentional Two, you had to start somewhere. So you still had to figure out what you were actually spending. Now, maybe you don't do that now because you said, Hey, look, these are my goals. We're going to pay ourselves first. And I did that dreaded B word show. If you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it. But it was basically breaking out our, our 50, 25, 25 principle, right? 50% of your take home pay goes to fixed expenses. 25% goes to variable. 25% goes to paying yourself first. So you figured that out, whatever your number is, maybe it's smaller, maybe it's bigger. I don't know, but the it's idea is bigger. Okay. But well, I should do like some of these little fun little <laughs> things, but okay. So anyway, the 25% that you do as you're, you're paying yourself first, you've figured out what that is. And then essentially you said, Hey, look, I've done everything I need to do. I've been responsible. Whatever's left, we can spend and be comfortable. Now you, in that pay yourself first, that's what you use to create the emergency fund. That's what you were using to fund your IRAs or your HSA or whatever you, you might have going on. But you mentioned in, in our notes here, the five big expenses. And I think mm -hmm. this is an important one because we see this a lot with our clients. Yeah. So the reason I mentioned those big five expenses, you know, in, in this budgeting idea, and I think that so many of these basic principles just fall into that, you know, cash flow planning or backwards budgeting idea. So, you know, paying yourself first, you know, and automatically building your wealth. But then if you're having trouble or if you look at the money you have been spending, they're often going to fall into five big categories. So they are housing, transportation, so your cars, which car you buy, food, so how often you eat out or eat in and where you eat, childcare and vacations. 
And so those five expenses, at least in my experience, my family's experience, account for the vast majority of our spending money. And so on the occasion that we have a month where like we spend a little more than we typically do, we'll look it back and sure enough, it's like, well, you know, we, we did go out to eat seven times this month or, you know, and we normally go five or, you know, oh, well, we did have to pay for summer camps for our kids this, this time of year because they're out of school and that's not normally a cost to us. And so all of a sudden we're paying a couple hundred dollars a week for two kids to go to summer camps and that drastically increases our summer spending. So yeah, those are the five big categories. Yeah, I think the one I'd add in here, and, and I know how you're organizing this, but student debt is obviously a big one now. I know your story on, on student debt and people can, I'm sure, read about that at the physicianphilosopher.com where you've chatted on a whole bunch of these really cool topics. But if we add in student debt, I think we can do that. One piece I want to add with vacations though is that some people tend to think that the money that they're saving, even if they're saving it for a, let's say vacation, I'll pick on that for a second, is part of that pay yourself first. And oh. it's, it's, it's an interesting concept because they're like, well, I'm not spending it. I'm saving this. But really what you're doing is you're saving for another variable expense that's coming mm. at some point in the future, right? I'm saving $5,000 for this amazing Hawaiian vacation that I'm not taking till next year. So I'm allocating, you know, 60 or you know, $500 a month or whatever it is towards this. But in reality, that's not part of that 25%, you know, pay yourself first. That's part of your 25% of variable expense that we're mm -hmm. talking about because you're paying for an expense in the future and it's ultimately going to be a variable expense. Childcare yeah. though, you know, would be a fixed expense. Now, does your kid need to go to a private school? Probably not. Depends on the area. Some people will fight me. I know even you're shaking your head, but like I have worked with clients that, you know, have basically said this is non-negotiable. This is where we want our money to go. And that comes into the next point, which I want you to dive into is, you know, the idea of just spending money on things that are important, that you've deemed important, that overall make you happy or make getting up out of bed, spending time away from your family worth it. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and the reason I shake my head about the the private school is because my wife is a public school educator. And so it, that, that was a non-negotiable for us because she otherwise would not be uh, buying what she's selling. You know, for our kids, they go to public school, but that was never really something we consider the other way. So speaking of buying, not buying what you're selling, number two point is interacting with the financial industry, which is literally what pretty much everyone in, unfortunately, in my industry is doing. You know, they're, they're not buying what they're selling. A lot of the products that they are selling are products that are created and meant to be sold, really not bought. And I'm curious, you can run with that or I'll, I'll join in. No, yeah. So I, I completely agree. And so my experience, and, and this has been well documented on our podcast and in, in my blog and several different places, definitely in my book, but my, my journey in financial knowledge got started because I got hosed by a, you know, an insurance salesman. And so one of the big things that I think is an absolute necessity is that you understand how the financial industry works at least well enough to be able to fight fair. And what I mean by that is to be able to get the advice that you need at a fair price and to get good advice. So one way you can figure this out is to follow the money. So I teach everyone that I talk to ask someone that they're working with, if it's a financial planner, uh, an insurance agent or otherwise, how do you get paid? And what I mean by that is not how are you paying them? Those are two different questions, right? So oftentimes people are like, well, I asked them and they said that like, you know, 
you pay me by X, Y, or Z, you know, and it's not really that much or, or what have you. And I'm like, no, did you ask them how they get paid? Cause they, they could be getting paid from a commission in terms of money coming directly from you to them. They may not view it that way, you know? And so I think it's important and, you know, you can dive into assets under management or, you know, fee only versus fee based. But I think it's important for you to understand how people get paid so that you can understand where their potential conflicts are, because no matter who's giving you advice, no matter how they get paid or don't get paid, they, we all have conflicts. And so you have to understand those if you're going to get good advice. Yeah. And, and people ask us all the time and I want you to be able to do this, but they say, you know, what are your conflicts? I look at it and it's like, well, if I think, you know, let's use Jimmy as an example. I think Jimmy comes to us and says, Hey, I'd really like to work with you guys. You know? And then he asks, what are my conflicts? And if I like Jimmy, I think he'd be a good fit. My conflict is like, well, you could go get this advice from someone else and potentially have it cheaper and that's okay. <laughs> but I'm incentivized if I think Jimmy would be a great fit for us to say, Hey, I'd really like to work with you. Let's make this happen. That's pretty much the least amount of conflict of interest you can have. Most people, most advisors or insurance salesmen, they are paid through like a Jimmy said, a commission. Maybe it's a kickback. If I said, Oh, um, Jane down the road is a planner and she refers you to Bob, the CPA. Well, Bob might be able to give her $500 for referring her a client. Well, is Jane sending, you know, Jimmy to, to that CPA because that's the best one that will fit her needs or is it because that's the one that's actually going to pay her? Yeah. And, and, and that's a great question. So as, as the consumer of financial advice, really what our job is, is to get the best advice at the lowest price for the, you know, least amount of conflict. Like that's your goal. Right. I mean, it's just like buying and buying anything else. Like if you want to go buy a TV, you want to find the best TV at the lowest price that fits your needs. It's it, it sometimes, you know, can can start this offensive rhetoric. I think that regardless of what fee model the person's using, you have to understand where those conflicts are. And and it's going to be different for every model, like you said. And and some are inherently more conflicted than others. And that's started great debates in in the financial industry among among planners, you know, and you can speak to that more than I can. I obviously have opinions on it, but either way, the person that is the physician who is getting advice needs to understand that process. Yeah. And I'm going to have a whole bunch more content kind of coming out around financial planners and questions to ask and you know what they should be doing and all that. But from a, a very high level, in your if you're in the fee-only market, no matter how they're charging, if it's assets under management, if it's a flat fee, if it's an hourly, all roads point to the same thing you are paying something and getting something in return. Now, however they calculate the fee is dependent on the business, but it doesn't matter. A dollar is a dollar, right? There might be, if you've got $5 million in assets and you go to someone who's going to charge you an assets under management fee, that's going to be a lot more money than someone that charges an hourly fee. And that's okay. Just be aware of how they're charging and what they're being compensated so you can make the best decision. But without asking the question bluntly, how do you get paid? You will never know unless you dig through like an ADV and to try to understand that. But for the 97% of advisors or planners that are fee-based, it becomes a lot more conflicted. Now they're not bad people. I have friends that do this, but they won't give up their insurance licenses because they make literally four or five or six times more than I make on a, on a company basis because they not only earn the commissions when they sell a product, 
then they earn the trails on the commissions on the <clears> product <throat> going forward. So everyone needs disability. Like I'm firmly in the camp of like every physician needs disability insurance. But when you are going to buy disability, it's a product that you are purchasing. There has to be an agent of record. You can't just go knock on guardian's door and say, Hey guardian, sell me this policy. They'll say, great, go to one of our agents. Hopefully it's an independent agent that can sell that and not just a guardian rep. I'm using them as an example. It could pick any insurance company, but that person is going to have to understand your needs, help you get a policy, quote it out, walk you through the process and they get paid a commission in order to do that. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that leads back to that question. How do you get paid? Like if you're not an independent agent, well, I get paid by guardian. And that's why I'm only showing you guardian. Well, that okay. Be a red well, can flag. you get paid? Right. Can you get paid by other, other companies that offer other products? Am, am I limited to just guardian products by working with you? Or do you get discounts that I could find better deals on somewhere else? Um, you know, it's like all of that has to do with how the person gets paid. But yeah, the, the, the idea of commissions is, is, is tough, you know, cause in the insurance industry, you're going to pay a commission to somebody. You have to, it's super no, archaic. It's built no way around it. And this is, is bad. Like literally state farm for, you know, they sell insurance and, and all that, not just home and auto and whatever. They're literally on DOS. <laughs> They're that archaic. Like most people don't even know what I'm talking about from a DOS system. Go look it up. It's like pre windows. <laughs> it's crazy. They are so far behind the curve, but insurance as an industry is just very archaic and they need that, that agent to sell that product that will earn a commission for it. And we're not even getting into what good and bad products are. Just know that when you have an insurance agent that is also your financial planner, there's going to be a lot of conflicts and you're yep. always going to be like, man, I wonder is Jane telling me this because it's in my best interest or is she telling me this because she makes a bunch of money. And, and that's why there's a line in my book that says, if you have trouble remembering the difference between a fee only and a fee based planner, you can remember that by saying that the fee only planner is the only plan kind of planner that you should use because they don't have that commission conflict of interest. Um, and you it's know, really so I, easy to know that if they sell products or not. Like if right. they can recommend and sell insurance, they're fee-based. I mean, that's just a very black and white piece key reference for you as you're looking through this. But the last piece of that is the trail. So if they sold you a disability policy, they're going to make, let's say, I don't know, three or four grand selling that policy. But then they will earn a percentage of your premium like every year going forward, as long as you hold the policy. So the more policies they sell, they're getting this passive income stream. Now, yes, in theory, they'd have to reach out to the person, you know, make sure the address is up to date and a couple other little things. And that's why they're getting paid that by the company because Guardian's not going to go and follow up with their, you know, thousands and thousands of people that they have policies on tens of thousands, right? Ton of people they're going to depend on the agent. So the agent has to do that and they have to be compensated. Right. And, and, and that's important to know because that introduces another conflict, right? So like if I go to a, a different agent and say, Hey, this is my policy. What do you think about it? Well, they may look at your policy and say, well, I think that you need a new one. And that's because they're going to make commission on that, that new policy. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the, they won't just become an agent of record and, and get that trail, which honestly maybe is like, I don't know, a hundred bucks a year, something very minimal. Right. It's not that much, but over, you know, thousands of policies, it becomes quite a bit of money, but they're going to look at it and go normally, you know, if they're a good person, they're going to say, yeah, hey, this is a pretty good policy. You, know, you should be fine. But if it is a bad policy or if it's in question, you, 
you bet your butt they're going to be like, you know, Jimmy, I think you really need to look at this and, you know, evaluating your insurance needs. We probably need to make some changes. What mm-hmm. that really means is let's get another policy put in place so I can earn that huge upfront commission. Right. And this is just disability, which everyone needs. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the crap whole life, you know, or universal life or, you know, any type of annuity. We're not talking about any of that stuff. Like a whole life policy might pay an agent twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in that one time commission. Right. It's a lot of money. So now you're like, huh, he said I needed a million dollar whole life policy. And that was, you know, this is going to cost me whatever it is, you know, $15,000 a year. Well, that agent is going to make likely anywhere from 80 to 100% of that first year's premium as their commission for selling it. And then they're going to earn, you know, a five to 7% trail on that. You sell thousands of those policies. I mean, you're retiring on the beach. You're making bank. Yeah. yeah and, and that's, that's actually, I, I always ask people that have whole life policies, like, do you know how that works? Like, do you know how much that person got paid? And like, no, I'm like, well, it's, you know, 50 to 110% or 80 to hundred typically, um, of that first year's annual premium. And they're like, well, what? Yeah. So I'm now I'm you're like, going to a planner who's suggesting those things. Right. And, and if your planner is, is working for a large insurance company, <laughs> you know that that's coming and in an easy way to know if you actually are potentially going to get taken. This is a fun one is if you bought term insurance from someone and they have a conversion rider inside your term insurance, know that the pitch is coming at some Mm. point. It'll be Jimmy. We referred, we reviewed your insurance needs and we think we need to make some changes. We'd like to convert this term to some to whole life to make it more permanent, to make sure you're covered. (laughs) You know, the, the pitches are amazing. They get, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. Jimmy's like pointing at himself, right? To, to go through these sales training programs, they've, they've dialed it into emotion. I know we've talked about it, but that's a free one. If, if you have a conversion rider inside your term, just know the call's coming. Yep. And, and so that, that's point number two, dealing with the financial industry and, and, and knowing how it works and knowing where the conflicts are. So number three is student loans. Now, you know, you might have listed this first because it's typically the biggest concern on most people's mind when they're finishing training is the hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. You know, with the average being two hundred grand nowadays. Yeah, uh, ours when is two hundred ninety thousand for your clients. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's it's a big thing on people's mind, and you know, the book dives into this and kind of talks about public service loan forgiveness versus private refinancing and, and give some ideas on, on how to figure that out. And I think that the biggest principle to really take away there in terms of the decision tree is your debt to income ratio. For people that talk to me and they say, well, you know, I have $150,000 in student loans and they're going to be making 200 grand a year. I, I just, why would you chase after public service loan forgiveness if you have like a three or four year residency and you're going to keep them around for six years when you can pay them off in two? Like you just shouldn't do that. Now, on the other hand, if your debt to income ratio is flipped and you have $500,000 in student loans and you're making 200 grand a year, well, now that's a very different situation and public service loan forgiveness is a very viable option. And not only is it viable, you should probably do it. And so I talk a lot about debt to income ratios as a way to help you figure out this decision tree and, and help you figure out whether you should refinance or not, which is a common question that I get. Yeah. And we've talked about student loans so much, so we won't go too much further into this, but I will say that if you are trying to figure out, should you go for PSLF or not, if you owe more than two times your annual salary, it's usually in your best interest to go for PSLF, even if that means you make a little less money. 
And I'll give you a quick example. If you're going to make 200,000 and you owe 500, right? That's if, if you owe, if you make 200 and you owe essentially more than 400, we're essentially saying you should probably look at PSLF. Now, if that means that by taking the 200 job, really it ends up being 180, you absolutely should take it. It makes it even more reason. And most people think, well, why would I want to make $20,000 less a year? That sounds like a terrible option. Well, in reality, what's going to be forgiven is going to be much more than that. And obviously I don't can't throw the math out because we don't have all the variables, but you're going to get way more forgiven than you would if you refinanced, even at First Republic with their really low rates and paid it off over time, you're going to get way more forgiven than that 20K gross that you missed out on, which if you live in California, now you're down to like 10K net. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to move the needle as much as you think. Well, no, and I, I agree. And I've actually had people, friends that didn't know about public service loan forgiveness until they were finishing. And they're looking at that debt to income ratio and they have something like that. And they're like, but I have to start now. It's like 10 years from today. And I'm like, well, you know, first of all, a personal finance curriculum at your medical school or residency would fix that problem. But second, I was like, I mean, the amount of money that you're going to be saving, like I, I just, we looked at like how much you're going to be paying every month to pay it off yourself versus how much money they'd be saving if they, you know, just use PSLF. And it was like, I mean, this person had an absurd amount of loans. Like it just made sense. So yeah, the debt to income ratio is, is extremely helpful. I think in thinking about that. So two times your annual income in debt, you, you need to really start considering it. Yeah. And if uh, they, if they had direct loans, they were working for a 501c3, like they hit all the requirements and just didn't fill out the paperwork. You can right. still go back. It's okay. But it would have been nice to you know, keep track of this. And if you are going for PSLF, just keep track of all the data, all the forms, make sure you're just paying attention. You, you know, you're real stickler on the details and certify every year. It's, Oh, of course. And I know it's not fun. And if you want to look at, you know, free little plug here, if you want to just understand what your right repayment options should be, go to loanbuddy.us, fill out the stuff, drop in your NSLDS file, and it'll literally tell you, Hey, you should be in repay or, you know, IBR, whatever it is. So I'm going to check that out. Free little thing. So point number four is investing. So student loans is, is a big topic. The other big topic people talk about, you know, should I pay off my loans or should I invest? So that's certainly in the 20% of what you need to know about personal finance. And without diving into the weeds here, you know, we, we alluded to this kind of earlier, but you make that big picture, right? You paint that big picture using the kinder questions or whatever tool you'd like to use to figure out what's important to you, create that budget. And then you're going to start talking about savings. Like you want to save X amount of dollars by, you know, age 45. So that you're financially independent and able to, to walk away from work if you wanted to or you can continue to practice medicine because you want to and not because you have to, which is my hope. That said, how do you get there? Well, you have to invest. And, and the way that I talk to people about this is basically, you know, using different vehicles. So we all have a certain amount of tax advantage space where we get tax benefits. And then once that's all used up, you can start using your know, non-tax advantage space. But you fill those vehicles up with passengers and the passengers, at least in my book, I recommend passive index funds, uh, which has been talked about a lot on the show. Uh, but the idea there is to get you to the number that you want for whatever your savings goal is that we're talking about. So that might be retirement. That might be your kid's college education. There are various things that obviously people have in mind when they start talking about investing and saving money. But I am a big, big proponent when it comes to this topic of just keeping it simple. 
And it's for the behavioral finance reasons that we've talked so much about on the show, that if it's a simple method, it's a simple portfolio, it's something that you're not tempted to check every day to see if Amazon stock's gone through the roof or, or whatever, you're more likely just to leave it and let it stay and stay the course, which is so important when it comes to investing. You don't need to get a PhD in market strategies and look at algorithmic based investing or, you know, I mean, small and value tilts. Like you can do that. That's fine, but you don't have to. That's not, that's not in the 20% you have to know. Yeah. It's more just don't blow it up the other way and try to actively time the market. It's time in the market is way better than timing the market. So I think it does definitely does fall into that 20%. And the one piece I think I'd like to add when I, you know, as we were breaking these things out uh, in order to talk on the show was that you're, return on your investments in the beginning literally mean nothing. You're looking at a very long-term horizon, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It doesn't matter what happens in the first year, two, mm. three, even five years, especially your IRA accounts, 401ks, your 403Bs. Honestly, who cares? Put it in the right investments, set it and forget it, automated the investing and every month with your paychecks, you know, put money in. Don't worry about it. What If you want to worry about something, worry about your savings rate because you can actually control that, right? So if you had $1,000 a month that you found in your budget or cash flow planning or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I forgot what you called yours. Backwards budgeting. Yeah, whatever. Some backwards idea that Jimmy's got. Right? <laughs> if you found $1,000 a month, that would actually come out to $12,000 a year. If you had a $10,000 IRA and the market doubled that year, you wouldn't come off better ahead. Even if the market doubled, which it, it does not do, I'm just using a real ludicrous example for it. You come out ahead if you just found the thousand bucks. Now, I don't want you to think to pinch pennies and that's what we're getting at. I just am more proving the point of like a hundred percent return in the market can be easily outshadowed in the beginning part of your career by good profit budgeting. 100%. I completely agree about this. And actually in the book, I have a graph that goes through that. You're saving $50,000 a year and then it takes until year 17 until your compound interest that you've earned in the market actually contributes more to your total savings than your savings rate did. So it, it takes a really, really long time. And of course, the first year that you contribute, it's 100% because that's the first year that you put money in. So it doesn't get to 50 until like almost 20 years later, which means that the gross amount of savings that you have is predominantly determined by your savings rate. It's such an important thing. And it's the same reason I tell, tell residents if it's, you know, if they're in the right situation that putting money into, you know, a Roth IRA or matching if they get it at their, at their employer, like that's not inconsequential money, you know, just dedicating a certain amount of money to your savings rate to build those financial muscles is important. And that money will actually end up mattering after 60 years. It's amazing what $5,000, $6,000 turns into, you know, after, uh, after that amount of time. And then, you know, the last point is, fifth point is the balance between today and tomorrow. So this is the last chapter in the book and I, I probably should have started with it, but ending with it kind of serves the same purpose. It's the last thing that you read when you, when you come away. And the idea here is that it is important to find the balance between paying yourself first for tomorrow's needs and living a little today. You and I talk a lot about kind of being on one end of the spectrum or another that, that it, you know, either extreme is bad. And I think it's the same here. So if you're spending all your money right now, because you want to live it up and YOLO, you only live once, right? That kind of hedonistic ideology is just not helpful for your personal finances. You're going to work till the day you die. Um, and, and there's a good chance that you might die poor. 
on the other hand, if you save and scrounge and come up with every single penny that you could to, to put the money into the market to save for tomorrow, and then you get diagnosed with a terminal cancer diagnosis at the age of 40, and you never lived because you were wanting to do that someday later down the road when you'd saved enough money, that's obviously not ideal either. And so you have to find a balance between those two things. And we all have different tools and methodologies for doing this, but you know, please, please, please be intentional about your money and where it goes, what it's doing, and please also enjoy some of it today. Absolutely. I have a client that told me he's got his go-go years, his slow-go years, and his no-go years. <laughs> I like he's, that. he's about to retire, or he's at the time of recording, he actually did just retire, but and it was it was fascinating to hear the perspective on that. Now, a lot of the times we were working with younger physicians and they're like, retirement's so far off that and they know they should be doing something, but they're more in that yellow stage than the, hey, let me be I, I have very few people that work with us that are saving way too much. We have a couple. And and what's fascinating with them is we're having to have the discussion on almost the permission to spend, to enjoy what they're doing. But I just wanted to leave you guys with that. Go, go years, slow go years, and no go years. No go years. Yeah. No -go <laughs> Love years. it. Yeah. So let's so... jump into our journal club. Today we're going to be talking about a article called Medical School Debt is Not Good Debt by our friend, Dr. D, the frugal physician at thefrugalphysician.com. And I think this was fascinating because I have a different view on debt than she does. And we're going to have a respectful one-sided debate on this. But I think it was interesting to do. And why we bring on the journal clubs is because I want you guys to be exposed to different ideas. Just because I think one way doesn't mean that it's always right. This is someone who thinks that medical school debt is a horrible idea. And Jimmy, let's go into a couple of her her major points that she has. Yeah, so so let's do it. Um, first of all, I should say that I, I met Dr. D at FinCon in 2019. She's like the nicest person in the world. Absolutely. And obviously, cool. she was also up for the best new personal finance blog in the Plutus Awards, which is like the big awards for all the bloggers and yeah. podcasters out there. So she's um, got good content that you guys should all check out. And she's already been on the show. We talked about, are you frugal or cheap? That was a, a fun one that got some people riled up on the frugal or cheap side, but... Yeah. So because of where she's coming from and kind of that message that she brings on her blog, she takes this like really kind of negative view on medical school debt. And she makes kind of in the middle of her article, a few major points. And the, the first one is that at the educational debt that we get doesn't increase over time in terms of the value of it. In fact, she argues that it decreases and she gives lots of reasons for this. So basically, you know, we get that initial education that we paid for and then we have to continue to educate ourselves afterwards because medicine changes so much each year and we have to get our CME credits and all this other stuff. And and she even argues that our medical degrees are being devalued by other medical professions that are, you know, kind of creeping into the fold and, and taking, um, you know, some more patient responsibilities and potentially limiting what physicians can do. So she says that like that value, like that intrinsic value that you originally spent every year after that, it kind of declines. As a physician, what are your, what's your take? Because I have a, an opinion on this, but not having gone through it, just being kind of the tag along on the coattails with Taylor going through med school and residency and fellowship. What's your take on that? I don't know, because I think that you can use your career as a bit of a lever, I think, which is the idea of good debt versus bad debt, right? Good debt provides a lever for you to use. I've used it in multiple ways to continually increase my income over time. And so I haven't seen it 
dramatically decline. And I'm also in academics. And so I'm going to naturally have to educate myself and my residents each year, every day anyway. So I haven't found the same kind of creep in terms of, you know, continually devaluing. Now that said, you know, she, she goes into this on another piece, but being an employed physician, there's absolutely the potential that insurance companies start reimbursing us less or that our employers decide to pay us less. And so these things can happen. I mean, it, it might be coming down the pipe is, as our medical landscape changes. So I don't know, but I haven't had that experience yet. Yeah, I see both sides to it, you know, and not to blast NPs or PAs or, or whatever, but like, you know, they are doing bigger roles. They have other things that are happening and that could end up affecting how physicians work or it is affecting how physicians work. But I, I don't agree with the, uh, that it decreases over time. I think you have a base knowledge and then you're building on that knowledge forever, right? And no one can take that away from you. And, you know, it. I think the good debt, bad debt comes into play, like how we were talking about PSLF, right? It, <clears throat> it's good debt if you took out 200000 to make $150,000 a year and you can build upon that knowledge, increase your earning potential. And her next one is, you know, the promise of higher salary. But I think, you know, you're all really, really smart people. You can figure out how to make more money. Yeah. So that's actually interesting, right? Because I, I know that's true. I've had that experience, but entrepreneurship is not taught in medical school. And There's so like the, it's not taught in medical school. I know like, well, the entire business and medicine aspect of things or personal finance. And so, you know, when it talks about like that, that kind of thought process, I mean, most physicians like they're like, I mean, I earned what I earn. Like, what else can I do? And it's like, there are so many options out there if you just were aware of them, you know, from changing jobs or locums tenants or doing medical legal work or, you know, starting a blog or, or whatever your thing is. Like, you can use that experience and that knowledge and that platform. Go be a speaker. I mean, just, you know, there's so many different things that you can do. But unfortunately, most of us aren't taught how to be entrepreneurs. And so that's not even a thought that crosses our mind. And in fact, in academics, it's looked at negatively. A lot of the times people are like, you know, wait, you, you want to get, you want to be paid more? We, we don't pay you enough. How dare and you? So, right. So it's like the altruistic thing, like, oh, you went into academics to educate people. How dare you talk about money? And um, it's like, I, I just don't understand. It's, it's kind of driven into you, unfortunately. But, but yeah, you're right. You, you certainly could use it to make more. Yeah. I mean, we have clients that make six figure amounts from speaking. We have clients that literally, I mean, he's a, surgeon and in his boxers on his sofa when everyone's gone to bed he's over there reviewing videos of other surgeons doing robotic stuff and he gets paid for it and i'm talking <laughs> like thousands of dollars a month getting paid to do stuff that he truly loves doing and reviewing and looking at and you know he gets paid to do those things these aren't we're not even talking medical surveys you know locums work expert witness work there's all sorts of other things that you can do leveraging your medical degree into more income. But her next point was that the only investment for loans is the promise of higher salary. Yeah. And so, you know, this is interesting because I think that her argument is that that higher salary is not guaranteed, right? So she's trying to say that like the reason that it traditionally has been considered good debt is that you can have a higher salary in return for the debt that you took out. And that with the, the changing landscape, like I mentioned before, that that's just not necessarily going to be a reality for you when you finish. And a, I'm not going to dive into the weeds on this either, but a classic example of this is public service loan forgiveness. I can't tell you how many medical students come up to me and they're like, well, do you think that's still going to exist when I finish? Like I'm racking up $300,000 student loans. Like, like, do you think that 
Like that promise is still going to be there, you know, because the promise of tomorrow and the higher salaries and the options that currently exist may or may not be there when you when you finish. And so they're all concerned about that, you know, and and I, I think that Dr. D's point here, uh, I would actually agree with some of it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I like that. Although on PSLF, like all the laws are right now currently being proposed and written for truly new borrowers. So that doesn't right. mean that, oh, you're halfway through the program, they're going to rip it from you. doesn't mean that, oh, I'm in medical school and I'm still taking on debt in order to do this. It truly is a brand new borrower. Right. Think people in that's high school. That's why you have promissory notes, right? So you make promises to each other to, to uphold your end of the bargain. Well, and there's and so, something called estoppel and there's a whole bunch of legal things. And here's the deal. Like, yeah, physicians aren't going to get in a class action lawsuit with the government and try to figure all this out. But you're not the only ones going for PSLF. There is a army of attorneys that have gone through the same stuff you've gone through with tons and teachers. of debt and teachers, but even them, they're not going to be there, but you don't want the whole bunch of attorneys. You just educated to turn around and sue you because you're going to go back <laughs> on what you did. So I think, you know, as it works through it, it'll, it'll end up working through and be fine. But, but I brought, I brought on an attorney, student loan expert, Rebecca Maurer, and we talked all about this specific thing. And she's a justice fellow. She's seen laws that are being proposed and it's truly for new borrowers. So I think everyone in PSLF right now, at least from what we're seeing, what we're being told, the messaging, all of that, but even behind the scenes stuff, you're okay. It'll, it'll be okay. But and, and she does make the argument too that, you know, there's been a, a transition from owning your own business, being a doc that owns your own practice to employed positions, which pay less. And and that that's absolutely happening. Absolutely that's, a, you know, yep. overwhelmingly. So her, uh, her third point, and I'm going to quote this, because this is, this is good. So Dr. D says, and I quote, student loans are a personal loan on our freedom and our time. That's a good one. Let that sink in for a second. Although she's talking basically that, you know, it doesn't go away is how she's kind of phrasing this, but I don't know. I like the thought. I like the thing. I don't know. I think of student loans just so differently. I think of it as you're essentially buying a business. Granted, even if you go into academics, you're still buying a business. It's the business of you. It's in your brain. We obviously need to make sure that you're protecting that business so you would get term and disability coverage, right, in order to make sure that the people, depending on the income of the business, are taken care of. Mm -hmm. And as long as you don't overpay for a business, you should be really you know, totally fine. You should be good to go, right? Now, we said the two times, you know, debt or more, you go for PSLF. Well, if you're buying a business and you're only going to make 150000 and you spend 700000 for it, you made a bad business decision. You made a bad purchase. And that's, and that's challenging, right? Because it is, most but it's, it, it's okay. Just think through this a little bit further. If you know, hey, I'm going into, I pick on PEDS all the time because of Taylor. If I'm going into PEDS and I know I'm not going to get reimbursed like a dermatologist, totally cool. Like you're doing this not to get rich. You're doing this because you love what you do. You love working with kids and making them better and helping. And thank God there's people like all of you out there, but Agreed. make a smarter decision and go, well, maybe I shouldn't go to one of the top schools and maybe I shouldn't go do residency in New York city and then do a fellowship. Cause I'm going to subspecialize and I'm going to move to San Francisco to do that. And I can't afford to live anywhere. I got to rack up debt. I have a ton of student debt cause I went to a really good school. Like be smarter about it. So what you're saying is that student loans don't take our freedom. No, I think over time you need to, I think you need to have a plan. I think, and if you can think 
think forward enough. Unfortunately, like physicians, they get caught up in in the moment, right? I gotta have really good grades in college to get into a good med school, and I gotta have good, you know, scores to go to residency. You gotta do great to do fellowship, or you know, get a great job. And you always have this like carrot in front of you. And if you just stop and be like, think three steps ahead, and go, well, what is it that I ultimately want to do? What's that attending job look like? Okay, I'm probably not going to get paid that much because of the subspecialty I'm going into or the field I'm going into. That's mm-hmm. okay. Just don't make the bad decisions to get there and then go, oh, shoot, what am I going to do? Right? Because then you have no choice. You have to go PSLF at that point. It's true. All right. Well, we'll make sure to tag the physician philosopher, Dr. D, on our social media so you can find it there. It'll also be in the show notes. I'm sure we'll tag to her because we like what she's doing. I mean, she's an amazing person. And I love her blog. Clearly, everyone else does because it's was nominated for the best new personal financial blog, which is super cool. I hope I wish she would have won, but I think she did a great job. And if you aren't following us on social, please do at Financial Residency and just follow Jimmy at thephysicianphilosopher.com. Get on his newsletter. That way he'll hit you up there. It's good. Debatable. <laughs> Have a great week, everyone. Take care. See you guys Friday.